You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread or water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishab the priest, who, had anoint, who was anointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elisheb had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed for the treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Methina, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on their donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrannius also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of the servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. 
Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates and keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them, beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall each then listen? Uh, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Zembalat, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in this work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie, and good morning, everyone. Welcome, um, especially if you're a guest joining us this morning. We're really glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to New City on a, a really exciting Sunday as we, at the end of service, will hold baptism. So uh, just sit tight uh, while we close out the book of Nehemiah and get ready for that. Let me just invite us now, as we look at this last chapter, to, to really pray. Don't just listen to me pray, but I want to invite you to pray in this regard uh, there very well may be something that God wants to communicate to you through some aspect of this service, whether it's the passage that we're about to consider, whether it's the stories that we hear later, uh, whether it's through the actual physical demonstration of baptism. There, there may very well be something that the God of heaven and earth would have to communicate with you this morning, uh, and I want to invite you to pray with me that if he has something, that, that uh, you're, you'd just be open and ready to receive that. One of the characteristics that sets apart the God of the Bible from uh, idols that's frequently referenced in the Bible is that unlike the idols, like our God is not mute. Uh, he's a God who communicates, and I want to invite him to do that very thing in this moment with us together. So uh, pray with me as we get ready to, to look at this last chapter. Lord, you're not mute. You're not unresponsive. Um, and Lord, you're not just waiting for us to come running after you to, to, to get some sort of revelation or um, understanding from you. God, you, you reveal yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us through your word that we just read. You reveal yourself to us through the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And you reveal yourself to us most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, who is uh, the final revelation from God. You say in Hebrews 1 that in former days you spoke uh, through prophets and at different times and in various ways, but in these last days you've spoken to us by your Son. Lord, would you speak to us this morning through your Son and how he comes to fulfill all of our failings, all of our longings, 
the deep frustrations that we have with ourselves, where we want to do good, but we can't on our own. Uh, we, we are helpless, and yet you come and meet us in the midst of our helplessness. And so, would you reveal Jesus clearly to us this morning? That's what we long for, and we ask for that in his precious name. Amen. Amen. So, here we are at the end of Nehemiah, which is somewhat sad, a little bit uh, comical as well. Really what this chapter could be summarized as is Nehemiah's public meltdown. Um, If you just remember back with me months ago, we began in looking at Nehemiah the leader, and he has this time of praying as he gets ready to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And all throughout sort of his ministry, his life, he's this sort of steady, cool, calm, collected, opposition is coming, obstacles are coming to what Israel was supposed to do, and yet he's steady and focused throughout it. Let me just recount some of the things that happened with Nehemiah here at the end of his story, which is also just a helpful point just to recognize uh, the Bible doesn't have these like heroes. It has one hero, Jesus. Everyone else, the Bible's very honest about the flaws of even the best leaders in the Bible, which should actually be of great comfort to us because of all, this, all of us come in this room this morning with flaws of our own, uh, perhaps maybe somewhat like Nehemiah. Let's just recount some of the things he does in this chapter. It begins with him throwing furniture out of the temple. Uh, it, it reminds me of that Will Ferrell movie where he goes through a split up with his wife and all of his things are out on the lawn. Like Nehemiah is throwing things out of the temple. He tells the people in verse 21 who are not supposed to be working on the Sabbath, literally, that if they do it again, he will lay hands on them. That's the threat that Nehemiah, that Nehemiah gives them in this chapter. Verse 25 is straight-up three-year-old behavior. It sounds like the back of my minivan when we've skipped naps. It says that he beat them and pulled out their hair. Uh, and then finally, in verse 28, it describes him as chasing the people away. So this is quite a difference from the kind of cool, calm leader that we've seen in Nehemiah in the previous chapters. And as much as we as modern people love a good public meltdown, uh, that's why like tabloids and Twitter exist, as much as we love to be a spectator of this sort of like irrational, angry behavior, um, if we look a little bit more closely at the story, we might very well understand what has Nehemiah in this place of deep anger and frustration. And we actually might even be able to identify with some of it ourselves. So let's just recap real quick the story that we've been considering over the past few months. The people of Israel were exiled from their home because of their perpetual sin. But God in his mercy rose up Nehemiah to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, beginning with the wall, so that they could come back from exile and begin reestablishing their lives. This was no ordinary construction project. Uh, The odds that were stacked against these people to even be able to lay one brick were uh, insurmountable. But God's hand moves on the people of Israel. They're given all the resources that they need. They begin facing opposition from some of the surrounding nations. They continue to build, if you remember, even with threats against their own life. Uh, All the way till about the middle of the book, they complete the wall And they're now able to reestablish their identity as the people of Israel. And so we have this long section in the book of Nehemiah 
where the people open up the law of God and there's this revival of them being concerned once again for the things that God has spoken. They have this deep concern that they would walk obediently to the law of God. Uh, And then they have this long recounting, if you remember, that very long chapter that was about the history of Israel where they just saw this cycle happening over and over again where the people would pledge to God, we will walk obedient before you. Uh, Five minutes later, they're worshiping idols. As a result, God judges them and sends them into exile or brings in some foreign nation as an instrument of his judgment. Through that, they're brought to a place of humility where they cry out from God's mercy and are reestablished as his people once again, only to go through that cycle over and over again. And then coming out of that chapter, they look back at their history, they look back at their own failings, and they have these solemn vows. God, we will never turn back to the ways of our forefathers. We will never re-engage in those areas of disobedience uh, that, that, that we were walking in. We solemnly pledge before you today, we will obey you as your people. And then, after these dramatic, heartfelt commitments and promises, I want us to see what happens just two chapters later, right here in chapter 13. I want to compare verse to verse the promise they made and what they actually did. Chapter 10, verse 39, they solemnly promise to give the portions required to the priests and the Levites. Chapter 13, verse 10, I found that the portions of the Levites had not been given. Chapter 10, verse 39, We will not neglect the house of our God. Chapter 13, verse 10, Nehemiah asks, perhaps rhetorically, why is the house of God forsaken? Chapter 10, verse 31, solemnly we swear if the people of this land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. Chapter 13, verse 16, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. One more, chapter 10, verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. When we look at Nehemiah's deep sort of despairing meltdown in this chapter. He's not upset at the people because they're making minor mistakes. To a T, all of the things they promised not to do two chapters earlier, here in chapter 13, at the end of the book, they're doing those very things. I mean, the things that had gotten them into trouble in the first place, the things that had sent them into exile and destroyed the whole city that they've now miraculously rebuilt, those very things they're doing all again. So as humorous as Nehemiah's public meltdown is, it's perhaps a little bit uh, understanding as as to why he's kind of at the end of himself here. And Nehemiah's deep frustration over the failed commitments of the people are maybe a little closer to home for us than we might want to immediately admit. Because of course it's easy for us to look at these Israelites and say, man, here you are doing the same thing over again that you promised you would never do. 
But how many of us sitting in this room have made firm commitments before the presence of God that we will never engage in that pattern of sin again? We will never engage in those destructive behaviors again, only to find ourselves back at the very same place. God, I'll never gossip like that again. God, I'll never raise my voice at my kids like I did that, that time again. God, I will never use sex outside of your will again. God, I will never search for that on my phone or my computer again. God, I'll never drink like that again. God, I'll never trade my family for work again. Fill in the blank for yourself. What firm commitments, either to God or to yourself, have you made that you, maybe quicker than you would have ever uh, hoped, are right back to, right back to square one, just like the people of Israel. And honestly, I don't even think this is a unique thing just for Christians or religious people. You could be in this gathering this morning, you don't believe in God at all, but still, if you were to measure your life, even against your own standards for yourself, all of us, no matter who we are, religious or irreligious, would see ourselves falling short of even our own moral commitments. So here we are. Here are the people in Nehemiah's day are. This is the end of the book. This is actually, historically, the end of the Old Testament. You've got a lot of prophetic books, but those sort of fill in historically in a, the, the uh, uh, historical books that, that we've looked back on. This is the end of the Old Testament, and what it has are these firm, solemn, tear-inducing commitments. God, we are done living in sin. We are done turning from you. We are done uh, making these destructive choices only to end up right back in the very same place. The Old Testament ends with the complete and utter failure of the people of God, longing, waiting, and hoping that he will do something about it. And this is actually a very fitting transition for us, so we as a church will move next week into a season of Advent. And Advent is a time, uh, it just means waiting or, or, or longing, anticipating. Advent is a time where we look at what's broken in our world. We look at what is broken in our homes, in our lives, in our cities. We look at the things that are not as they should be, and it is to, meant to facilitate this longing. Like, how long, O oh Lord, will we be in this position? When will you send the salvation to us that you've promised? We'll get into that next week. Today, this is how it ends. Nehemiah falling apart because after thousands of years, God's people simply cannot live up to their calling. The curtains close. God goes silent for several hundred years. There's no demonstrations of God moving in any powerful way. There's no prophet that's raised up. Uh, Nehemiah closes. The curtains close, and everything goes silent. The last thing we see people doing in the Old Testament is failing to live up to God's standard. What is the first thing we see people doing on the pages of the New Testament. Quite ironically, this morning, the very first thing the people of God are doing in the New Testament is being baptized. They're being baptized. 
Mark is widely accepted to be the first gospel that was written, and I want you to read what the people are doing after hundreds of years of silence. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached to them saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's just a very simple argument that I want to present to you this morning. The solution to our failures, our failed commitments, our inability to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards, the solution to all of that is baptism. It's baptism. Now, let me clarify. When I say baptism, I do not mean the physical act of going into the water and coming back up. That is a symbol, an outward or physical demonstration of a deeper spiritual reality that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. When we are baptized into him by faith, this is simply a demonstration of that. Similarly to like a birth certificate, okay? Your birth certificate did not cause you to be born. It simply demonstrates that a new life has entered the world. It's a sign, a symbol that says uh, something new has happened here. Similarly, baptism does not cause any special magical thing to happen to you. It's the faith that you put in Jesus that causes you to be brought to new life that, that, that's significant. But it is that, it, it, it is that spiritual baptism that is the solution uh, to our failings as human beings. And I want to just reflect briefly this morning as we transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament and then being baptized. What did baptism mean? How is it the solution to our failings as human beings? And the first thing I want to just go over with you is the prerequisite for baptism. Uh, the prerequisite to be baptized. Uh, the Old Testament ends with this last attempt to finally Live obediently to God through, keyword, human effort. And the crazy thing is that they not only fall short, but they, they are disobedient in all the areas that they committed uh, that they would, would not go back to. So Nehemiah closes with this helpless plea from Nehemiah as he looks at everything that's happened. He just simply turns away from the people and turns to God and says, God, remember me. Remember your promises. Uh, remember me. It's this, it's this plea of helplessness, and baptism is the very same declaration. There are a lot of things you can do in the Christian life by yourself, okay? You can read the Bible by yourself. You can sing on your own. You can take communion. You can pray. You can love your neighbor. Can I tell you something that you cannot do yourself? You cannot baptize yourself. Uh, you know, if, 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 you've, if you tried to do that, that wasn't a baptism. That wasn't real. Why? Because it's a completely passive experience, all you do is sit there and receive because baptism is a declaration of us saying, I can't, I'm helpless, just like the people in Nehemiah. I may make bold commitments about how I will walk obediently to God, but left to myself, I can't, I can't do it. I remember talking with Kip, who will share a little bit of his story a little bit later last week. Um, first of all, it was a powerful experience for him just because I was able to take him to Tony's for the first time. Uh, so that was significant in itself. But we were just talking about baptism. He was sharing a little bit of his story. 
And him recognizing that as he gets ready to be baptized, like this sort of is like the beginning of this new journey for him. And he's got a lot of things, just like all of us in our past, that, that God's rescued him from. And, you know, this, this new journey maybe can be a little bit intimidating because, you know, you're being baptized and you're saying that you're going to walk with Jesus. And I remember him just saying as he kind of faced that prospect of this new journey of walking with Jesus, simply, simply uh, saying, I just realized as I entered this, into this journey, I can't do it without Christ. And I thought to myself as he said that, man, like, Kip, you perfectly understand baptism. You perfectly understand what this is about. This is a helpless declaration saying, God, I cannot cover my wrongs from the past. I cannot clean myself up enough. I can never try hard enough to be able to live up to your standards. I can't. I can't. But Christ can. And he has provided everything that I need in order to be saved. That is the prerequisite for baptism helplessness. I can't do it, and that's why somebody else baptizes you. It is a completely passive experience. Now, when you are baptized, what is that demonstrating? I want to look at two inner things that happen. So this is a physical outward thing that's demonstrating something uh, on the inside that happens. What does it mean? Number one, baptism means death. Death. What baptism acknowledges is that our situation before God is so bad so helpless that it required a death to set it right. It required a death. When we acknowledge our sin and our helplessness before God, he doesn't come back with a 12-step plan. He doesn't come back with a special prayer that'll set everything right. He doesn't come back with a carrot at the end of the stick that keeps you motivated to start making the right choices finally. When we acknowledge our helplessness and sin before God, what he gives us is a death. On the one hand, our sin is so horrific, so shameful, so hated by God that it required the death of his son in order for us to be forgiven. But not just our our position before God, our spiritual condition is so broken, so beyond repair, he can't merely add some things and fix it. it. It needs to be fully demolished. This is not a restoration project. This is a wipe out the whole old self and build something entirely new. And the people in Nehemiah's day show this. I mean, they firmly commit to walk in obedience to God and then immediately fail. So Nehemiah keeps trying to clean this mess up over and over again throughout the book until finally at the end, this is is what he says, he's like this gardener with weeds that just keep popping up. And as soon as he turns his back on the ones that he cleaned out, uh, they they grow right back again. So he says at the end, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. What What Nehemiah didn't realize is that the people in his day and we ourselves don't just need a cleansing. We need a crucifixion. We don't just need to clean our old selves up. It needs to be put to death. It needs to die, which is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus experienced the death that we so desperately need. When he dies, our sinful nature dies with him. That's why Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we put our faith in Jesus, somewhat mysteriously, we experience a death of our own. That old sinful self is buried never to return. And so this is just helpful for some of you who struggle with just kind of continued sin patterns of your own life right now. 
how you view yourself through what Christ has done is very important. And you need to understand that in your current state, uh, your, your, your sin nature is not pinned down, suppressed, being kept under control. By putting your faith in Jesus, your sinful nature is crucified. It's put to death. It is no longer here. It, it, it was left in the grave with, uh, that, that Jesus laid in 2,000 years ago. So what does baptism mean? It means? It means death. When you go into the water, it's the symbol, symbolization of, of death. But praise God, because the water's pretty cold this morning, that you don't stay there. Baptism means something else. It means resurrected life. When we baptize someone, we declare over them, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. What our helpless condition needs is a crucifixion and then something entirely new in its place. This is what we receive through the resurrection of Jesus. His death becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. How does Paul describe it? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Following the death we experience, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, yes, the old has passed away. It's dead, it's gone. Oh, but on Sunday morning, Jesus allowed something else to happen. The old passed away, but behold, 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 the new has come. We have been resurrected, given new life through the resurrection of Christ. And what we have through the resurrection of Christ is something the people in Nehemiah's day never experienced. They had hearts that were dead spiritually, so as hard as they tried to follow God's law, it was always obligation and duty. We, with our new resurrected hearts, desire to do God's will. We find pleasure, delight, joy in obeying his commands. What was the, the hymn we quoted a, a couple weeks ago? Um, to see the law fulfilled by Christ, to hear his pardoning voice, turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. That duty into choice, that's the resurrected heart. That's the resurrection that we experience through baptism. And as a result, we're not just recovering sinners, we're not just reformed sinners, we are resurrected sinners. We've become something entirely new. That's what happens inside of us. Let me just close by acknowledging what happens around us, okay? Something happens to us inwardly, but something is also uh, spoken over us and, and we are placed somewhere. So when you are baptized, you're also placed into a new family. When we're born, it's actually quite powerful. You know, uh, you're born, and we've been through this a handful of times, and you're just exhausted in the room trying to recover, and quickly the people come in there uh, with a birth certificate needing a name. And with some of our later kids, we didn't even have middle names all the way sorted out, so we were still a little foggy trying to figure things out at that point. But, but at that moment, what's happening is a naming ceremony. An, an identity happens where when you're born, your first and last name are given to you, and you will forever be known by that name, not only as like some syllables that, you know, get your attention, but, but that name tells you where you belong. That name tells you where you're from, who you belong to. That, that name gives you a home. Well, when Jesus established baptism, he established a naming ceremony. When we are baptized, we are named belonging to the God of the universe. We are baptized from our old identity into the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that moment, God is claiming us as his own, and he is placing us 
into a new family. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were baptized into one body. That body is the family of God. And with it we get a new name, a new identity, and a new place to belong, the church. The church is now our home where we learn together to live out these new resurrected lives in Christ, where we walk with other brothers and sisters, and in the way that we show concern and care for one another, we tangibly express the concern and care that God has for his people. We are not left alone. We are placed into this family. And it really is the last just reflection I'll make on this. this. This new identity, this naming, this identity shifting experience that we have through baptism is the solution for what so many of us in our modern day are longing for. Probably the most discussed and like hot topic out there is the question of identity. The question of identity. How can I identify myself in a way that gives me confidence, security, stability, and then maybe most importantly, a sense of belonging? Because all of the identities that we're fighting out over there place us with a people. It gives us somewhere we can belong. Everyone is looking for some group that they can belong to. And so maybe that's how you solve the identity question. You find some aspect about who you are and the group you belong to, and that's how you kind of get that stable sense of identity. Others might try to figure out their identity by doing, you know, an Ancestry.com report to sort of understand your heritage a little bit more and get better grounding uh, for, for, for where you come from and who you belong to. Some people work very hard to establish their identity whether it's proving that they're successful, proving that they can make money, proving that they're beautiful, proving that they're respectable, whatever. They just work very hard to figure out their identity. For the Christian, do you know what we do to determine our identity? We simply look back at our baptism. Say, that water, that, that tells me who I am. I was once a helpless sinner, and that helpless sinner died with Jesus. I am now a new creation living a resurrected life. And where do I belong? I belong in the family of God. I belong with God's people. I belong to the church. So if you affirm those realities this morning, you have put your faith in Jesus. Hopefully sometime after that you were baptized. Um, we have this celebration one time through baptism, but we have an ongoing celebration of our identity through communion. Through communion, we remember all those truths. We were once helpless sinners, but through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we've been redeemed. He gave his body over to be crucified. He gave his blood to cover our sins. And he was raised from the, day, from the grave on the third day to give us newness of life. As you take communion as we do every week, we, we were regularly remembering our salvation. We are regularly coming into contact with our redemption. But if you're here this morning and uh, you're outside of this faith connection to Jesus, you don't believe the same things that we do about him. I want to urge you to stay in your seat as we come forward to take communion. It's never to make anyone feel left out. No one even notices. It's just important for us to recognize as we take these elements, whether it's baptism or communion itself, we are saying we, from the bottom of our heart, believe these things. We believe the truth that Jesus gave his life for us, and now we've given ourselves wholly to him. If you're not in that place, don't come forward and take communion. 
Maybe you can have a conversation with us about baptism. We would love to have that discussion with you. But you don't even have to wait to be baptized to experience true baptism, if you will. You can put your faith in Jesus this morning, saying those simple things. God, one, I'm helpless. I cannot fix myself. There's nothing I can do to make myself right before you. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all for me. And I believe that uh, his death on the cross, his resurrection is sufficient to save me. Let me pray for us now. If you're in a place to take communion, come on forward. We'll take communion. And then afterwards, we will celebrate this beautiful ordinance of baptism. Let's pray together now. Oh, Lord, help us treasure the redemption that we have. The people in Nehemiah's day just ended looking at themselves, looking at your law, and helpless. Maybe wondering to themselves, what are we going to do? How are we ever going to be able to live in a way that obeys and rightly honors the God who made us? We're in a completely different situation where we look at our lives and see the same things. We cannot do it on our own. Not I, yet through Christ in me. We have Christ. He is our redemption. He is our salvation. And we put our faith freshly in him this morning. Lord, would you minister even now as uh, some won't come forward, and that's right and good. Would you minister to them now, summoning them, drawing them to the salvation that you offer? Spirit of the living God, would you continue to meet us through these, through these ordinances that you've given us? In Jesus' name, amen.